Hello and welcome to the King's Fund podcast where we talk about the big issues and ideas in health and care. I'm Helen McKenna, I'm a senior fellow here at the Fund. Today I'm honoured to be joined by Professor Dame Sally Davies who is currently the Chief Medical Officer for England but who will be leaving the role at the end of September this year to become the first female Master of Trinity College, Cambridge. Sally, welcome to the King's Fund podcast. Thank you very much. It's, I'm hoping, a pleasure to be here. <laughs> so we'll be talking more about your career journey and your current role as Chief Medical Officer for England later in the episode. But first, part of your role involves giving advice to the public about their health and well-being. Do you have any habits or guilty pleasures that you find you have to really keep in check? Well, I like food, so I have, and as you get older, it's easier to get fatter, so I have to be careful I don't overeat. I've always been clear I like good wine, but as I've aged, I've drunk less but higher quality. (laughs) I'm lucky I've never smoked. I take plenty of exercise and I like a bit of chocolate. So I'm quite lucky, really. Yeah, it sounds quite balanced as well. Pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. I try, but I actively do try and live what I say. Yes. Because I think otherwise it's very unfair to the public. Very good. So you've held many fascinating roles in your career. Can you tell us about your career journey and what led you to where you are now? So I did medicine at Manchester, but I was really interested in genes and DNA and all of that. But I loved patients. I did a couple of years and it's well known because it's on record that I found the first couple of years very brutalising, sitting with people. I mean, if I use one example of a patient with his feet tipped up in the air as he bled from his lungs to die of TB that night, sitting with a young woman aged 21 whose kidneys had packed up post-pregnancy and we had rationing of dialysis and there was no space for her because they thought she wouldn't comply with the drug regime. So I found all of that rather brutalising and then I uh, married a diplomat and went and lived in Madrid for four years, did a couple of clinics a week voluntarily of paediatric cardiology, and then I came back and got on with it and did paediatrics, haematology, and became a specialist in sickle cell disease, which I loved. And I did that out at Central Middlesex. And I think it was very formative because working with the community in Brent where actually, though I was a specialist, I looked after three generations of some families because it's an inherited disorder. Mm. So that was very special. And I think we had, we quite likely still have, some racial, kind of institutional racism against the sickle cell patients. They were all in district generals like where I was, and there was very little research money. They needed all sorts of services which they weren't getting. It has improved, but I still think they don't get as good a deal as they should have. And I enjoyed it, but I got sucked into research, setting up my own small program at the district general, then sitting on the region's research committee, moving on to chairing it, becoming a regional director and eventually the director general of research. So I kind of slowly moved into running research Mm. and looking at it strategically. And then from that, I graduated to CMO as well. And then CMO losing the research or giving it up and picking up a lot of uh, global health work. 
so I was really interested in what you said just then about institutional racism for sickle cell patients. Do you think that institutional racism goes beyond sickle cell? Well, it probably does. We have lots of, for instance, genetic studies on diabetes, but are we focusing on the South Indians? Mm. You have to go to the district generals again or the Royal London, but the main teaching hospitals, which set a lot of the style of the NHS, at least the hospital medicine side, are less less black, less Afro-Caribbean. Yeah. And that makes a difference in terms of what is chosen yes. for research and what is understood. Absolutely. And yeah. the services that are provided. Absolutely. And so uh, when you when you ended up working on sickle cell, was, was it that sense of institutional injustice that led you to pick sickle cell or was there something else? It was both. Yeah. It's the most fascinating disease. And yeah. as I said, I'm really into genetics and genetic diseases and all of that. But I've also always wanted to fight for the right thing and justice. And I felt that we should, I should put my effort into supporting that community, both in their services and in research. And you talked about the brutalising aspect of, of the medical profession or your experiences when you started out. Do you think that's changed for doctors starting now? I think it's changed dramatically, but not always for the better. So how do I explain this? I think that the, the episodes I had are no longer there and people get much more support. But the young doctors are terrifically, intensely worked. Mm. And that can be very stressful. They don't have the team system that we had or the firms, which gave me a lot of support. So I think they get a different form of brutalisation. It's it's not... And yet they have to deal with the dying and the unwell. And that intensity and lack of firm support... I mean, I, I hear from my children and their friends that consultants don't always know the names of doctors looking after their patients. Where's your support mm. network then? Yeah. You don't know who you're going to be on with next time you're at the hospital. So how do you build the bonds between the different generations of doctors to help each other on getting the best outcome for patients, mm. let alone on your own emotional support, which is terribly important. And do you think that the idea of providing emotional support and sort of mental health well-being support for health professionals seems to be pretty new in the in the medical profession, despite what they've been dealing with day in, day out? Do you think we're now at a kind of shift in terms of that kind of being taken on? I think it's getting better, but you yeah. have to remember where we came from, a yeah. male hierarchical system yeah. where if you needed support or said you wanted help, you were weak. Yeah. And that was a bad mark. And so it's as you break that sort of system down and we get more women in, Mm. you get a a different sort of system. So I think it's changing. Changing. But um, the intensity, as I say, the lack of firms, I I deplore. I worry for our young doctors. They find it inhuman how they are looked after. Tell us a little bit about your role as Chief Medical Officer for England and in particular what other things you enjoy most about it. I've always held that there's a job description and a job you have to do and if you deliver that then you can do other things that that platform allows you. 
So the job description is about giving advice to government, which may be policy or ministers, not just in the Department of Health, but actually across government on all matters to do with health. The ones I have to major on are, of course, public health. And it's not just how to improve health and the role of prevention and all of that, but I've developed a role around genomics, going back to my love of genes, the research I did, and setting up Genomics England. There's a big element of advising and supporting during emergencies. So during my time, we've had Ebola, we've had bad winter crises with flu, so that then strays over to me rather than a management issue. We've had Novichok. Meanwhile, of course, there's the public advice and engagement and uh, the ones that jump out are, of course, the um, low-risk guidelines for drinking alcohol, the advice to government on social media Mm. more recently. So there's that. And then one of the fun things that I have to do is produce an annual report. It's a statutory requirement on the state of the nation's health. The first one I did was much more like previous ones had been much more about data. But then once Public Health England got going, I realised that wasn't needed. The data was there. So I started using the advocacy part of the role and focusing on what I saw as interesting or Cinderella areas. And that's been great fun. I have to represent us internationally on health, so sit on the WHO executive board. But I've, of course, developed an international role on antimicrobial resistance Mm -hmm. and played out our UK health diplomacy and soft leadership around that role because I passionately care about it as well. It's a really wide brief, actually, when you think about the number of different big issues you're kind of having to go in and out of and and be on top of. That's what makes it fun. I'm always learning. And one of the great things is everyone's happy to advise me so I can call on the best and they help. And I mean, what fun. No one could have a better job. Oh, until I move Uh, to Trinity, of course. (laughs) And then that'll be my fourth career. (laughs) Even better. I'm sure it will be. So I know that you're committed to ensuring that scientific evidence and research are at the heart of government decisions about health. And in a previous role, you actually created the National Institute for Health Research. I just wondered about how you find it working with politicians, because politics is often about ideology. So in some ways, uh, your role takes you right to the frontier between evidence and ideology. How do you manage that conflict as somebody who's so driven by evidence? So... Yes, my USP is evidence. But I think I moved on many years ago from evidence-based policy being my objective to evidence-informed policy. Right. I have a role. It's technocratic. It's providing advice. Ministers have a role as democratically elected people. And so the iteration is very important to try and get to the best answer. But I've only once had to say, if you do that, I would have to resign. In general, well, no. Always they listen with respect and in general they will follow my advice and I'm pretty content with where they end up. And what was the issue where you said... (laughs) (laughs) That's shrouded in history. Oh really? Will it come out in your memoirs one day? (laughs) We'll see. (laughs) But I guess you're not just in your role seeking to provide advice and leave it there. You also want to persuade What's your style of of convincing ministers to to do what you think is right? Well, my family would say it's water on a stone, of course. I would argue it's a bit more subtle. I'm quite careful to frame issues 
so that the person, the minister or the policymaker who listens can understand the relevance to them and why I'm saying it. So that's one thing. Another is, you know, people don't like being bounced. So as I do my annual reports, I and the chief editor will go around to various people and say, you know, I've done a report on this and think of saying this. What do you think? Could you live with that? Sometimes I say, well, if you just change two words, we'll come out and support it or we'll do it. Wow. Well, then it's usually worth it. Not (laughs) always, but usually. And other times they don't like it, but it means that by the time it's published, they're not shocked by it being difficult. They're saying, well, yeah, we knew she was going to say that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's about how you handle it and Mm. thinking through the handling very consciously of the various issues. Let's talk a little bit about public health. What keeps you awake at night in terms of the big public health challenges and what do you think is the biggest threat to people's health and well-being right now? So we know, you know, I'm going to talk about antimicrobial resistance. So let's just put that one on the side and think about the other things. If you look at the work of Chris Murray from the Institute of Health Metrics and Evaluation, you will see the big threats going forward remain smoking, hypertension, obesity, and I would now add pollution. Yeah. And so it's the lifestyle and lifestyle and behavioural issues. Yeah. And in your role, um, you've done a lot around trying to make it easier for people to make healthier choices. Where do you think the balance lies between government, businesses and us as individuals when it comes to looking after our health? Well, we all have roles to play, but I'm not libertarian in the sense that it is everyone's responsibility to make sure they don't have too much weight because we have a society structured that makes taking the healthy option a difficult option. It makes taking the unhealthy option the easy option. So I do think that government and business have a role, and you can play it out in different ways, of changing the structures of our environments. And so if business don't want to do it on their own, and they generally don't, for quite good reasons actually, What they generally want is a level playing field. And if one of them starts, then they may lose money. Mm -hmm. And so when I talk to business, they often say, well, yeah, we have sympathy with that. We wouldn't mind doing it, but we want the level playing field. Put in a regulation and we'll comply. Put in a regulation and we'll innovate to do better. I mean, one of the examples I I quite enjoy is Nestle. Mm -hmm. They had done the basic science on how do we taste sweetness and we taste it as a, an immediate hit on our tongues. And so you don't need a dense sugar molecule. And they designed a new spherical one where the sugar was on the outside and nothing on the inside. They can make chocolates that taste really good. And Kit Kats, though I, to their surprise, could tell the difference. But they were still <laughs> very good. But they can make chocolate with half the calories. That's fascinating. So they can innovate around it if you yeah. put in the regulation. If you put in the incentives for and, them to do that. Yeah, and if you look at the um, sugary drinks levy, I mean, they reformulated most of them. So I do think government has a role in the structural environment that we all live, and it's highly supported by the public, that particularly to ensure that our children are protected. That's fascinating. I heard you say in an interview we're not an island when it comes to health. It made me think about Brexit, uh, not surprisingly at the minute. 
Are you worried about the impact of Brexit on health and particularly public health and our ability to collaborate with others on public health issues? So I think everyone's worried about the impact of Brexit on our health service, the workforce. If we have a hard Brexit or fallout, what that will do to drug supplies, we can't guarantee Mm. that everything will work as it should do and that there will be no deaths on public health. At the moment, we work very closely with the EU, and it is the EU that brought in the regulations that give us clean beach standards and clean uh, river standards and things. Because of the way we've gone about it, we're going to transfer those directly into our own legislation. But what will come later that we wish we had, but we may not happen? And I suppose that then takes you into trade wars, You know, do we want chlorine-washed chicken Mm. when the EU doesn't have it? And I think there are going to be all these debates, and every time we have one, the economy and trade will battle with other issues, whether it's chlorine is an animal welfare Mm. issue, but there will be other issues that could be human health. And I'm sorry if we move into a much more adversarial system where health of ourselves and the planet are not given a high priority. I hadn't I hadn't really thought about it like that, just in terms of those stark that stark mm. conflict that may well arise now mm. between the in, our interests in mm. health versus our economy and trade interests. Mm. Um and how that's gonna now potentially be fought on every single one of those. Yeah. Okay antimicrobial resistance, which I know you are a massive champion of. Where are we now in the fight against AMR? I'm very proud of where Britain is. Uh, We've reduced use in the community. We've stabilised use in the hospitals despite increasing throughput and complexity and ageing. So that's pretty good. Though with our new antimicrobial strategy that came out in January, we're asking for more. But what your listeners probably don't know is we've been doing pretty well on animals too. You know, 71% reduction in antibiotic use in the poultry sector with an 11% rise in protein production. We've reduced by, I think it's 48% over the last four years in the pork production. It's more difficult in beef and lamb, but I mean, we're doing really well. Um, but so where does that leave us as individuals in terms of what we can do in our everyday lives to, to make some contribution to tackling this issue? So the first is not taking antibiotics if we don't need them. And that's mm. about the conversation with the doctor, the nurse, the pharmacist and listening to them. And most upper respiratory tract infections are viral and they don't need antibiotics. You know, So have them when you have a bacterial infection. So there's that element. But then there's what can we do? You might say as activists, but as consumers, what meat are we buying? Is it meat that has come from somewhere where they might be using growth promotion? Shouldn't be because the EU has import regulations, but do they use a lot more? So looking at where the meat comes Mm. from in supermarkets and butchers, looking at fast food, consumers can have a big impact. Yeah. And it involves us being mindful around yes. some of the decisions that we're making. Yes. So I want to talk a little bit about leadership. I was on a leadership course recently 
and we heard from some amazing leaders who came in to talk to us and they spoke about what drives them and one of them described their drive as she used the words the fire in my belly and another described it as the sort of what makes them angry so I want to ask you what drives you <laughs> and what makes you angry I don't often get angry because if you get angry then you can't think so how am I going to sort it yeah I'm very cool and quite careful but it is I feel passionately about doing what I would call the right thing mm -hmm. whether it's the right thing by science the right thing by the public and it's about telling the truth it's about trying to protect people mm -hmm. even when they don't know they need protection it's about moving science forwards so it is it's about right and rights you've had a lot of firsts in your career uh, you're the first female chief medical officer for England and you're going to be the first female master of Trinity College. What firsts would you like to see next for women in health and care or wider science? I want it to be that it's truly a fair and equal society. I'm not really interested in quotas. I don't want equal numbers of women at the mm -hmm. top, but I want women, if they're as good, to get there if they want to. And I think that means we have to support women through childbearing, through being a mother. And we have to support both sexes through caring for elders and disabled too. But people should be given a fair chance. And do you think as a woman that you face particular challenges in your career that maybe men wouldn't? I think I would argue that in my 40s, I had my children in the 40s, uh, when they were young, I let my career not develop. I was just doing a really good steady career. Yeah. And I've often said to other women that many of us who, who have children come through at a later age because we come, not that I left the workforce, but you come back when you've got the space in your life yeah. with more energy and a maturity too. So we mustn't be ageist, with, particularly with women. We've yeah. got to let the women blossom at the stage that is right for them. Yeah. And if you could go back in time to when you were first starting out in your career and give yourself one piece of advice, <laughs> what would that be? Well, one thing is I'd be totally shocked with where I am. This is not, I didn't have a plan and I didn't expect to end up here. So it's wonderful. What I would say to that, because it's something I've had to learn, but I think it matters, is take the opportunities, hold your nose and jump. Don't be afraid. Just go no, for it. Go for it. I, even now do things and think, oh, am I going to be all right? But I have never not been all right. Really, you really do worry still about... Yes, I was doing BBC pre-record yesterday and I said to the interviewer, I'm feeling nervous. And she said, what, you're nervous, but you're terribly good. Mm. And I said, yeah, it's like doing a viva every time you interview me. Yeah. But of course that makes the adrenaline run. So then I probably do better than I would do if I didn't get nervous. Yeah. No, I worry at what I'm doing. I want to do a really good job. Yeah, that's good. Uh, good harness advice. the fear to yes. be a to be good even driver. Better. Yes. Yeah. But just coming back to the sort of uh, being a woman, being a woman and a leader. I remember. I think it was only last month, actually, hearing the Today programme interview on Radio 4 when Nick Robinson described you as chief nanny. And I thought you dealt with it brilliantly. But I also had my head in my hands as he as he said it. 
talk me through a little bit around how that moment felt. <laughs> he didn't actually say I was the chief nanny and he ended up with his head in his hands, actually. <laughs> he said other people. Yes. Yes, other people described you as chief nanny. To be fair to him, but yes. why I reacted very strongly and in the moment was because I'm quite used to that. Mm. Once I've done the content, got the message over yeah. at the end, because after all, they want some good radio and, and how do you have a go at me? Well, I've usually learnt my facts up. I'm passionate and caring. So you have a go at the nanny bit. But he started with it. And I thought that was unfair. So yeah. I responded in the moment. Challenged it back. And tell me who or what has been the greatest influence on your career? That could be a role model or a mentor. So I'm very lucky. I've, I have had lots of mentors. I was talking yesterday with someone about Professor Sir David Wetherill, for whom I never worked. He was in Oxford, but gave me such support and advice and told me to go for it. After I became a regional director of R&D, I clearly wasn't doing very well. I kept getting into kind of arguments with my colleagues. So I persuaded my then boss, Ron Kerr, who's fantastic and been really supportive to me all the way through, to send me on a management course. And I went off to Fontainebleau to the European Business School to INSEAD on an emotional intelligence course. And that was life-changing, let alone career-changing. I've had a wonderful executive coach for mm -hmm. something like um, 13, 14 years yeah, who, cool. who was, would challenge me and say, you've been here before. Surely you can do better this time. And and all sorts of things. So I've had lots of support in many ways. Yeah. And of course, the support of my husband who believes in me. Yeah. On the way up to Trinity in the autumn for an interview by all the fellows, I said, oh, why am I putting myself through this? He said, because you want it and I want you to get it. So you have to, yeah. you know, but there wasn't any, oh, don't worry type of thing. It was just very straightforward support. Yeah. And there was a lot of excitement here at the King's Fund when people found out that you were going to be coming to, to be on the podcast, especially female colleagues, but everyone here was excited. I guess that's in part because women think of you as a role model. Is that something that you're comfortable with? Do you see yourself in those terms? I know I am for some, but I'm perpetually surprised, actually, by the impact I have and by how many people see it as inspiring and everything so I am perpetually surprised by it but it's rather nice yeah absolutely and so final question to you you'll be leaving your role as chief medical officer in the in the autumn and you've done huge amounts in it what advice would you give to your successor I think you have to be in this role to be successful evidence-based able to speak your mind but to know when to back off and not overreact or react too quickly. Most problems are best slept on. Most problems are best shared with other senior colleagues. Most problems are best solved by teams, both within the department or the health system or across government. I work quite closely you know, with the police, all sorts of people. But working as equals, I bring something to the table, but they're expert at other things and they should lead on that. How can I help them? So recognising the strengths of others, not yeah. being a lone wolf. And I walk into meetings and I say, I am your CMO. I'm here to help. 
Well, thank you so much, Professor Dame Sally Davies, for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you, Helen. Well, that's it from us. You can find the show notes for this episode and all our previous episodes at www.kingsfund.org.uk forward slash KF podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Helen McKenna. And thanks, as always, to our podcast team and our producers, Ian Ford and Sarah Murphy. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review us on iTunes or get in touch either on Twitter at The Kings Fund or my account at Helena Macarena. We hope you can join us next time.